Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm joined as usual by Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and benefits compliance team, and we're here on this podcast to help break down some of the changes that may be on the horizon with the GOP effort to repeal and replace uh, the ACA. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about essential health benefits and uh, Suzanne's going to walk us through what those are and how they might be changed. Before we do that, we're going to talk about some regulatory procedure changes that are affecting how overall change may occur to the ACA. So Suzanne, can you walk us back through this a little bit, going back to one of Trump's executive orders that he put out there? Yeah, this is this is kind of our regulatory discussion, compliance portion of the discussion, um, getting into some of the technical details. But I think it's important because it, it will affect how changes are made. So many people didn't realize the significance of an executive order that was signed by President Trump in the end of January. Um, it was actually Executive Order 13771, and it requires agencies to revoke two regulations for every new rule that they want to issue. Um, so it was aimed, obviously, at cutting federal regulations, one of his campaign promises, and requires that any time that you issue a rule that imposes any cost, you must repeal one, um, at least two existing rules that in the aggregate have the same amount of cost or greater. And so this is uh, creating quite a buzz and really a change in, in regulatory procedure. So while this deregulation really sounds easy in theory, take away two for every one, it's very difficult to execute. It raises a lot of questions. And as we'll talk about um, for just a moment, it uh, certainly can raise lawsuits and we can create lawsuits as well. In addition, starting in 2018, uh, there was an order that called on the director of the White House Office of Management and Budget to give each agency a budget for how much it can increase regulatory costs or cut regulatory costs. So all, taking all of this together, it is creating a significant regulatory procedure reform. And the last one, this is the history portion, the last one that you can think of that had such significance was when President Reagan created the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in 1981. And that office is responsible for reviewing regulatory actions uh, before they're published in the Federal Register. So that gave them more power in looking over the text and the substance of regulatory actions and obviously has been used as a, as has been criticized widely at times for being too active and also criticized for being not active enough. But it placed a significant stopgap between an agency, their regulations, and actually being made into law. So it remains to be seen whether any of these changes and procedures will actually produce the type of effect that President Trump is wanting, a reduction in the number of existing regulations. Um, again, you know, the difficulty though is in the details. So, to repeal a regulation, it generally requires its own rulemaking process. So there was some uh, interim guidance that clarified that the two-for-one and net-zero provisions applied only to significant regulatory actions, and that was uh, assigned a dollar amount, meaning something that would have an effect of $100 million or more. So there are certainly some regulatory actions that can skirt under that threshold without having that two-for-one requirement. But nevertheless, even when you take away a, a, a federal regulation, it's governed by the Administrative Procedure Act. So that requires, um, you know, you're providing ample notice and opportunity for public comment. And and you can imagine that we we'll, can also expect to see lawsuits because there is this judicial review of any regulatory action that will require the agency to build this case that they're making for the regulatory action. 
and be able to be justified on the basis of it being well-reasoned rather than arbitrary and capricious. So I would expect to see some lawsuits during this time, and we'll see how this, this procedure is tested. Um, but we could also expect to see it used as a strategy. So if they have to take away, they have to make cuts, some of those burdensome efforts like certain reporting mechanisms we could see as a as a way to say take this away and that will save you you know that will that will go towards your cost cutting that you need to do as well in the regulation right so this is important and significant here because as we discussed on the last podcast the uh, republican bill to uh, get rid of the ACA basically they canceled the vote on that and so as it stands now there's no formal legislation out there for repeal and replacement so the administration, the Republicans are really left with making changes to the ACA through this regulatory process. Well, that's right. And we often talk about these three buckets of change. You have the one budget reconciliation process, um, which was to repeal the law. The second bucket, bu bucket is really new legislation that would require bipartisan support. And then the third bucket is this regulatory reform. So if we look at a law, a law is either created legislatively created by Congress, or regulatorily, it's created by one of the federal agencies. Um, but the federal agency is limited by the authorization given to it by the statute. And so there are limited areas in which regulations can make a change as compared to legislation. So at times you'll find um, legislation that provides a lot of detail, and it leaves really little for the regulations to um, provide detail on in implementation. At other times, you'll find the legislation kind of painting this broad brush and then pushing it off to the federal regulatory agency to say, take this, fill in the details for implementation purposes. Okay, so that's a perfect lead-in because this essential health benefits is really one of the latter there. The legislation was written quite broadly, and then um, it was left up to the regulatory agencies to sort of define that. So... We know this was a sticking point, this idea of essential health benefits. This is a sticking point between the moderate Republicans and the Freedom Caucus within the House. If we presume that there's no legislative change by the GOP, what changes can be made at the regulatory level? Well, yeah, and before I actually we get into those specific details on, on what changes can be made, we want to just talk about essential health benefits generally. And the, there's pros and cons to it, and you certainly have those that are in op opposition of such legislation or regulation because they say that adding these additional mandated benefits is, has been a factor in increasing the cost of coverage in the individual and small group market. So prior to the ACA, each state had its own set of health benefit mandates, as you know, um, and there are pros and cons to that as well because they consider they varied considerably between the states, and so you had to abide by the mandate via the state. Um, the health plans generally covered primary care, hospital stays, but many of them didn't cover uh, maternity or mental health care. And so you, and you often had to purchase separate coverage for dental and vision. So the ACA stepped in and they said, okay, we're going to have this federal minimum standard for coverage in the individual and small group market. And with this standardization, it will be easier to do comparison shopping on the exchanges. Okay, so let's talk about that federal minimum standard. That's what we're talking about with this essential health benefits or EHB. What was included in the EHB list? So by legislation, so this is by statute, they defined EHB as consisting of these 10 categories of coverages. 
Again, this is broad, but there there is some detail here that we can't get away from. So ambulatory patient services, emergency services, hospitalization, maternity and newborn care, mental health substance use disorder, prescription drugs, rehabilitative and habilitative services, lab services, preventive and wellness services, pediatric services, including oral and vision care. So what's important is that the details beyond that were left up to the secretary of HHS, um, who was charged with defining further essential health benefits, but it did place certain limitations. It said that HHS must do so to ensure that the scope of the essential health benefits is equal to the scope of benefits provided by a typical employer plan. And so there was um, some research that went on to try to define what that employer plan looked like. Um, the ACA also imposed additional requirements on HHS by saying that whatever the details came in as the EHB, that it must be non-discriminatory, it must address the needs of diverse populations, it must be balanced among the categories, so it wasn't unduly weighted toward any single category. Um, so what I imagine and what I can foresee is that because there are these restrictions within the statute, if you have Secretary Price um, go away too broadly from these restrictions, I could foresee a lawsuit um, saying that he's going to be on the bounds of his authority. Right. So instead of coming up with a single definition for each of these categories and really getting into the details, um, HHS under the Obama administration, they really punted that job to the states, right, through these benchmark plans? Yes, they did. And, that, and, and you know, that's kind of interesting. And that's a great point, actually, because when we talk about um, having to uh, define EHB within the confines of what's laid out in statute, they did punt it to the states. So presumably they weren't necessarily taking that close of a look at how they met those certain requirements. And in fact, um, what's interesting is they did all this work to, to look at what a standard employer plan looked like, and then they punted that as well. So they weren't uh, that tied to the restrictions that were placed in statute. But states were asked to choose among certain private health plans. And as you all know, they had to come up with a benchmark plan in their state. And then all the non-grandfathered individual and small group plans in the state had to provide substantially equal benefits to the benchmark plan. Okay. So from what we've been talking about, this actually sounds like a pretty good idea. This idea of standardization, minimum level, sort of a baseline of everybody's being treated the same. We're going to get the same benefits under a plan regardless of where we're getting it. Uh, but let's talk about some of the criticisms of EHB. What what was wrong with this, or what don't people like about this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they the opponents of EHB say that it has driven up the cost of coverage. And again, because it's requiring coverage of certain items that weren't covered previously. So prior to the ACA, 62% of individual market plans did not cover maternity care. 34% did not cover substance use disorder. 18% did not cover mental health services, and 9% did not cover prescription drug coverage. Now, we could certainly debate all day long that those things should be covered, but they weren't. And um, you had, by adding those in, of course, the cost of that coverage went up. So if we do make changes, you can imagine that insurers will go back to whatever minimum coverage that they can, um, although that does allow flexibility. The problem is that, uh, you know, the regulatory change in these categories is, is limited because the actual broad categories are set in legislation. So I don't think that you could have essential health benefits defined 
without maternity coverage or without substance use disorder. Nonetheless, it's still there's a wide variance of coverage that you can do within those broad categories. And so by allowing additional flexibility, they could, for example, omit certain drugs, omit certain services within that category. So that's where the flexibility is going to have to come, not elimination of a broad category. Right, but either, even then, it sounds like there would be political issues with removing some of these coverages. Well, and I don't think that those in, in the, at the federal level are concerned with that because they're going to push it down to the state level. Mm. So the state level will certainly have to deal with those unfriendly issues, and they did in the past. They often they had state mandates in the past that were obviously political uh, footballs, but you can certainly imagine that there's going to be pushback if they try to minimize some type of maternity coverage, for example, or if they um, if they push back on some type of substance abuse treatment that you know during a time when we have an op- opioid epidemic, and I will say that there's also this argument that there's concern that insurers would offer benefits to define a market segment, so therefore they would try to cherry pick the market by covering certain items and eliminating other items. So for example, they wouldn't cover an age drug because they didn't want that segment of the population. Uh, within their risk pool. So there's that concern um, when they allow greater flexibility. There's also concern that by allowing that greater flexibility and allowing changes in plan design, that you're going to create an imbalance in the risk pool. So for example, you have a plan that's not covering certain drugs that cover you know, certain chronic conditions, um, and you have a cheaper plan, you're going to have the healthier people buying those cheaper products and the sicker people buying the richer plans that cover those drugs and services for the chronic conditions, which eventually creates, uh, you know, an increase in the cost of those products. So that puts the cost of that type of care wholly on the families that um, have the health care need for it. So that's certainly an argument against it as well. Right. So within the bounds of administrative change, um, which is this regulatory change, what can President Trump or the GOP, what can they do here? Right. So as I was mentioning, the Trump administration cannot eliminate via regulation entire categories of EHB. Uh, We did have, obviously in the past, HHS punted to the states and they allowed them to create and identify their benchmark plan. So there could be even more Um, flexibility there where they could have a wider variety of reference plans. They could also give states greater flexibility to choose a reference plan for each category of essential health benefit. They could uh, define their own essential health benefits without reference to any plan at all. And then finally, the probably, I guess, the one that would create the most uh, flexibility would be the Section 1332 waivers that you're hearing more and more about. And that really allows a state to submit a plan um, that would be create an absolute alternative to the essential health benefit structure. So it, what's interesting about this whole discussion is this underlying policy argument about what would be considered by this country as essential to providing good health care coverage. And that's really gets down to what are we as a country willing to subsidize. It's a critical policy debate and discussion to have, and it's really on the back of this essential health benefit topic. Right. And it's not one that we're going to have today between me and you. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, let's quickly review um, before we finish up here how, how the EHB touches other areas of the ACA. Well, it is important because I don't want those on the, you know, listening to the podcast that have only large group plans, um, 
to think that this doesn't touch them. If you, you think of the ACA's annual out-of-pocket limits, that requirement applies only to EHBs. Similarly, you have the annual uh, and lifetime limits only apply to EHBs. The summary of benefits and coverage must dis disclose coverage, um, including cost sharing, which is for each of the EHB categories. Metal levels, of course, now those are obviously in the indiv individual and small group market. Those are based on actuarial value of EHB coverage. And then you have, for individuals, the premium tax credits and shock cost-sharing reduction payments that only apply to EHB. So the outcome of any amendment to an EHB regulation would impact not only coverage in the individual market, the small group market, but also it really seeps into the large group market, including self-insured plans. So it sounds like they're not going to be able to just get rid of one part here with the EHB or even modify it without having consequences across the, the ACA in other areas. It's just too intertwined. It's as all of these issues are. <laughs> right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. This has been very informative, and uh, thanks for doing all the research on this. And as we like to say on the podcast, that's, that's a, wrap. a wrap. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.